0: Schlender. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, December 3rd, 2019. Coming up, we'll feature two investigations. Investigation one, temperatures at the edge of our solar system are over 60,000 degrees. Now Voyager 2 has passed through that safely, despite the incredible heat. Planetary space physicist Fran Baganall will explain how that's possible. For investigation number two, we'll speak with Boulder naturalist Steve Jones and Scott Severs about why you might want to join Boulder's annual Christmas bird count. The edge of our solar system is called the heliopause. The heliopause is 9 billion miles away, three times further out than the planet Pluto. That's so far from the sun, you might think it would be extremely cold. Now, new data from Voyager 2 space mission indicates the plasma gases in the heliopause are not cold. They're hot, over 60,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And now NASA's Voyager 2 spacecraft has passed through those high-temperature gases without any apparent damage. This raises several questions, such as, why is the plasma gas so incredibly hot? And how did Voyager 2 pass through it without burning up? To answer these questions with us now is Fran Baganal. She's a scientist at the CU Boulder's LASP, that's short for CU's Laboratory for Atmospheric and Space Physics. At LASP, Fran Baganal studies things like space plasma. She has contributed research to the Voyager missions. Fran Baganal. We welcome you to How on Earth.
1: Thank you. Nice to be here.
0: Well, it's nice to have you here, too. Let's start with talking about what is this Voyager 2 spacecraft? When did it get launched?
1: Voyager 2 was launched in September of 1977.
0: That's a a long long time time ago.
1: 42 years. Wow. Then Voyager 1 was uh, launched soon after, and they both went out past Jupiter and Saturn. And then Voyager 2 went on past Uranus and Neptune. So they have been spending those 42 years exploring our solar system and heading further out.
0: Where is Voyager 2 now?
1: Voyager 2 is a little behind Voyager 1, but they're both about 120 times the distance between the Earth and the Sun three times the distance of Pluto away from the sun, right out on the edge of the heliopause, the heliosphere, so the influence of the sun. Now they're not past the influence of the gravity of the sun that goes way 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 out for much much more distance Uh, but the influence of the solar wind the magnetic field and the charged particles that flow from the sun out and they eventually begin to interact with the interstellar medium which is the the same gases flowing from the other stars around us that come in and interact with the material flowing out from the sun
0: This is so amazing that after we get past the solar system space, there's more space.
1: There's always more space.
0: And in that space, we have this Voyager 2 and Voyager 1, which have been traveling for over 40 years. What kind of technology is on board these spacecrafts?
1: 70s technology, early 70s technology. So it's pretty primitive in terms of um, memory and um, computer power and so on. In fact, the recording mechanism is tape. So pieces of tape, a tape recorder on board and then sends the data back. A cassette tape,
0: that little brown ribbon of tape. It's a
1: little bit more sophisticated than the average cassette tape, but it's the same principle rather than solid state recorders.
0: Now, Fran Bagenhall, you were showing me your key fob.
1: Yes. So the computing power of my key fob is probably greater than the computing power on Voyager. The data has to be gathered and carefully processed and very simply uh, processed and then sent back via radio waves that we receive. And the radio waves moving at the speed of light take 17 hours to get here to Earth to be gathered by the Deep Space Network antennas.
0: You know, there's something marvellous and thrilling and, and terrifying in some ways about thinking about a thread of us is that far away, looking past our world at the world of the universe.
1: Indeed. It's, a, it's really amazing, and it's fun to have been involved.
0: Oh, I'll bet it has been. Now, let's talk a little bit about temperature because there is this interesting news that this Voyager spacecraft, these two, have been passing through temperatures of 60,000 degrees without getting hurt. Let's start by what are some of the temperatures of things out there on the edge of our solar system, like Pluto. What's the temperature on Pluto?
1: If you put a piece of metal or a bit of a planet out in sunlight as you, it absorbs the sunlight, heats up to a local equilibrium temperature. If you go further out, that temperature decreases and gets lower and lower. So by the time you get out to Pluto, the surface temperature of an object is going to be something like minus 300 degrees Fahrenheit.
0: Very cold. So that's because the solar energy hitting it is kind of wimpy.
1: The sunlight decreases as one of a distance squared. So it it gets much less out there. So the flux of sunlight is decreasing as you go out. It just spreads out and becomes diluted.
0: But evidently, there's been news reports about how the Voyager spacecrafts passed through temperatures of 60,000 degrees Fahrenheit. That's temperatures hotter than the surface of the sun.
1: So the materials that Voyager is moving through is a plasma. So that's charged particles, positive and negative.
0: So there's two things I can think of with plasma. One is blood plasma. If I go donate blood, they want the plasma, which is kind of the thick, clear liquid. And the other thing was that movie Ghostbusters, where the plasma looked like kind of starting to melt gelatin is what it looked like. What is this space plasma?
1: It's the fourth state of matter, and it's where you have... Just charged particles, electrons and positive ions, so in the case of the solar wind, that's mostly protons, and they're mixed equally, and so the net charge is zero, but they're controlled by the magnetic field of the sun uh, as they move out from the sun.
0: Well, are they thick and gooey, like liquid, or are they something else?
1: They are extremely tenuous. There's very, very little. Oh. So the gases, although they're very hot, there's very little of them. So if you're in, out in the interstellar medium where Voyager is now, if you compare it with the gas that we're breathing here in Boulder, uh, you'll find that the amount is, and I'm going to give you a very big number, it's 1 and 22 zeros less gas in a volume right, uh, than there is in the, the air that we're breathing here in Boulder. So it's a very, 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 very tenuous gas out there. And so although those gases are moving, the molecules in those, on, and atoms and, and ions and electrons are moving very fast, uh, the amount of energy density in a volume is very, very little. So if you put your hand out, you would not get burnt.
0: In fact, your hand would be cold would be fine well your hand out in that space the difference between our temperature and the space would be so great we would just have all the temperature sucked out of us
1: right yeah because they're 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 so tenuous so let me give you the um cookie baking analogy maybe that's helpful
0: yes because what we're trying to figure out is how could even though there aren't a lot of these particles like they're they're as far apart as say Earth is from the moon, at least. I mean, the, these particles are pretty far apart.
1: They are pretty far apart, not quite that spread out. There's only about five in a cubic. Meter or a cubic yard. Oh, right, so there's just a few particles. Yes, per and, cubic. and there's
0: there's a lot more particles in our oxygenated air here. Right, so we know that it's a lot more diffuse and not much there. So, what about this temperature thing? These particles are moving so fast that's what makes them hot. They're kind of wiggling and right. jiggling, so their heat is extremely high.
1: Yes. So they've gained all this energy through interacting with the magnetic field and and accelerated to high energies. And so we call these cosmic rays. They're at very, very high energies and they're dangerous. You don't want to uh, experience them. Um, because they'll damage your body uh, and they do in fact you have to be careful with the detectors out there that they don't get damaged Um, but there's so few of them that it's not uh, you don't feel that as a heat so if you put your hand into an oven you don't feel the heat of the oven until you pick up your cookie tray with your bare hands you'll get horribly burnt because the energy density in that uh, cookie tray is very high whereas in the gas around it is much less.
0: Okay, so just like you, know, you don't want to touch the trays in the oven when the oven is hot, but you can put your hand in it. Uh, Voyager, since it's moving through this space without touching those particles very much, it's sort of okay. Does it have some instruments to help it avoid clusters of heat or something?
1: No, it just measures the particles. In fact, we measured the uh, energy go up. We measured all the cosmic rays outside. Uh, and we saw the drop off in the solar wind as we passed through that barrier out into the interstellar medium.
0: You saw the drop off of the solar wind. Yes. Because the solar wind is pushing out from our sun. And it kind of goes away at the heliopause. It's kind of like it runs out of steam or air.
1: Well, we think it's deflected deflected, around, and it's mostly contained inside, and then on the outside we have the interstellar medium. So it's a boundary between the two environments with their intermixing on this boundary.
0: Frank Baganall, you have said that this is a good thing or a bad thing, that we have a solar wind that's pushing against the cosmic rays. Which one did you say, good thing or bad?
1: Well, I'd say it's a good thing because it protects us from the energetic, the really super energetic cosmic rays, uh, much less here at Earth than they would be if we didn't have this bubble of the uh, heliosphere.
0: Oh, so it protects us. We are in a bubble.
1: We are in a bubble. You know,
0: Boulder's in a bubble, but this is a a bubble that's even bigger,
1: way bigger. Even bigger than Boulder. Way,
0: you know, three times bigger than the edge of Pluto. I mean, it's way out there. It's big. Now, if it's it's big, um, we do know some things about cosmic rays. We know that that's what could hurt. Space travelers even going from Earth to Mars is the cosmic rays. So even though Voyager's passing through these okay, we've got more to figure out about how to pass through them for our more delicate human bodies.
1: Indeed. We can send robots out there much more efficiently and protect the robots. Um, humans are very vulnerable, and so uh, human spaceflight is a very um, tricky endeavor. Uh, it's much easier to send robots.
0: Okay. Anything else you'd like us to know about what's happening there in outer space?
1: Well, yes, indeed. I would like you to know that the Fist Planetarium is going to do a musical all about Voyager, the Voyager mission, in March. And so watch out for that. Come to Fisk Planetarium here in Boulder on the CU campus and go watch and hear this cool musical all about Voyager, the Voyager mission.
0: That's so amazing. Here's to science. Here's to science being able to do things where 1977 technology is still teaching us new surprises.
1: Indeed. Very cool.
0: This is How on Earth, the KGN Science Show. We've been speaking with Fran Baganal, who is a scientist at LASP. That's CU Boulder's Laboratory for Atmospheric and Space Physics. Fran has been explaining the heliopause. That's the edge of the solar system. What is it? Nine billion miles out? Long way. Long way out. I'm Shelley Schlender. Up next, we'll go from the edge of the solar system back to the natural world around Boulder to hear Boulder naturalists Steve Jones and Scott Seavers explain why you might want to join Audubon's Christmas Bird Count here in Boulder. Stay tuned, but first we want to tell you today is Giving News Day, and it's a day to remind people of the value of local news, and particularly our science show. If you're a fan of the science programming here on KGNU, we ask you to schedule your donation to KGNU at coloradogives.org. Invest in your community. Support local news at coloradogives.org. The Colorado Media Project is offering matching gifts of up to $5,000 to 18 participating Colorado newsrooms, including us, yours truly, KGNU. Please take a moment to schedule your donation to KGNU on coloradogives.org so that you can take advantage of this match. Stay tuned. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Shelley Schlender, and with me in the studio are two beloved boulder naturalists, Scott Seavers and Steve now, Jones. <laughs> well, you're kind of <laughs> beloved to me because I get to go tromping with you to do the Nature Almanac now and then. And each time we go, it's like stepping into a different world. It's so amazing to me that how you all can just go out of even a parking lot, and suddenly you're in a world of animals and sounds and This Christmas Bird Count that's coming up is a chance for everybody to enjoy that kind of amazing stepping into this other world. So you tell me about it now.
2: First of all, being beloved means you've entered the fourth stage of life, which is you're looking good. (laughs) So thank you, Shelley. Um, Christmas Bird Count, the Audubon Christmas Count, began in 1900, and it was actually a sort of a protest uh, event. It was... An attempt to replace the historic Christmas bird shoots, where especially wealthy people would go out with their dogs and so forth and shoot as many birds as they could on Christmas Day. And um, so the, Audubon, the National Audubon Society started the Christmas bird counts in 1900, and the first boulder count was in 1909.
0: 1909 was a long time ago and this has been a citizen science project started as a protest but it's gathered more and more good data about birds and now you all when you go out there Scott Severs and Steve Jones when you do the Christmas bird count you can look up at a dark sky and see the silhouette of a bird and say well that was a peregrine falcon or that was uh, kingfisher and you know but how about somebody who's just a normal person how can they tell what kind of bird it is and help out with the Christmas bird count
3: well I think there's a lot of people like with experience that come on the the christmas bird count so we try to encourage everybody to participate from beginners to advanced it's kind of a gathering of all the bird knowledge um in town when we go out in the count and you rely on clues that um the the leader in your uh, group can give you at that time
2: to help you identify it i think that Beginners often see things that the uh, more experienced birders miss. I agree. We tend to depend on our ears, and we tend to depend on habitat cues to identify and locate the birds. And sometimes we're just not looking up in the sky, and people see things we'd miss.
3: Yeah, uh, Christmas bird count for me is a little harder because I'm very uh, keen on using my ears to discover and find birds. And in the winter, they're not singing as much.
0: Well, so there are challenges even for the experts. This Christmas bird count is going to be December 15th. Is that right? I think that's a Sunday? Yeah. Okay, so it's Sunday, December 15th. Um, As people are listening, what can we tell them about how to connect up with this Christmas bird count on Sunday the 15th? Sure.
3: Uh, Well, you can go to boulderaudubon.org and look in there and you want to connect with our compiler and leader, Bill Schmoker, who's been uh, faithfully leading the count for many years now, and sign up for the count. That way, he'll put you with a team. The count circle is 15 miles uh, in diameter, and uh, there's tons of territories and you can have your choice between a lowland territory or a territory that's in uh foothills habitat or even we even need people to count birds in town
0: can people sit and watch birds from their own backyard and count birds that way
3: yes definitely there's a whole host of people who just do backyard or feeder counts during that day
0: and then afterward, just so that people know, on December 15th, there is a potluck party for counting all the birds that have come through and telling people what they counted that year.
2: Yeah, it's it's really fun. It's it's going to be held at the Unitarian Universalist Church in Boulder beginning at 5. And the, the climax is when Bill reads the list of all the birds that have ever been seen or heard on our Christmas bird count. And he starts with the most frequent and you can guess what they might be.
0: I'm going to try to guess here. Let me see. Crows, starlings.
2: I think you're getting close. I think it's American Robin and what, Scott? I think uh, the one that's been seen on all counts is Northern Flicker. Northern Flicker.
0: Oh, that's the one that's the... starlings
2: were a little late to come in. Okay. Anyway, and then he goes down the list until he gets to ones that have been seen or heard on only one count. And that's very exciting for the people who actually saw those birds on the count. You know, that's sort of the semi-competitive aspect of it. But what's interesting is to see the changes in bird... Uh, populations over the years. The first count on 1909 was two people, and they went out from 2 to 5 p.m. I think because it was such a windy day, they didn't dare go out earlier, and they saw 12 species and 110 individuals. This was Norman Betts, um, early naturalist in Boulder. I think now we typically see around 110 species, and I don't know how many thousands of individuals, Scott. Do you? Generally, it's about between five and 8,000 individuals,
3: maybe a little more, uh, depending on how many geese have arrived and how many starlings are
0: here. Now, just a second here. Here's another question for citizen scientists who want to join in. How do you look at a pond of geese? Or starlings in a tree and figure out how to count them? Do, do you just rely on one person or does everybody count and then they share?
3: Um, I try to help my uh, team learn how to count the birds in blocks by taking a square of birds and then extrapolating it across all the other, the whole other flock and then giving you an average. We're not trying to get necessarily a 100% precise count. but We're trying to get a, a good
0: Yeah. Okay, so you have people look kind of right in front of them and say, I counted 30 birds in this one space. And then they kind of mentally keep that image in mind and go, okay, I see about 10 different spaces like the one I just looked at. Well, for
2: the waterfowl, we're using spotting scopes. So you can just count the number of birds in the spotting (laughs) scope and then move it over. Yeah, It's an inexact... Uh, science. But, you know, it's the same from year to year. And the relative abundance we get over time tells us a lot about not just our bird populations. This count is considered partially responsible for saving peregrine falcons and ospreys, because this was the first indication we had that they were disappearing when we had the DDT crisis in the mid mid part of the um, 20th century. And But it also tells us a lot about our habitat, how it's changing and what we need to do to maintain habitat for our native bird species.
0: All right. So this actually, even though it's kind of fun and everybody learns how to count birds and see them, there's data being gathered that is used in actionable ways in the communities where the birds live. And this has been an important part of also looking to see what huge decline there's been in birds overall in North America. Is the Christmas bird count data.
2: Yeah. I would like to say something about that, though. You've got to be careful with Christmas bird count data when you're looking at things like nationwide declines. Obviously, in Boulder, we've had an increase in the number of birds because we have a lot more trees and we have a lot more water here than we had 120 years ago. Um, Recently, I saw an article saying that uh, eastern meadowlarks had decreased 85% in North America, and they just use the Christmas bird count circles. Well, it's t- that's totally bogus, because the Christmas bird count circles are centered around county courthouses, and all those are urban areas that have expanded, and the grasslands within those urban areas have disappeared. So you have to be careful. Now, here in Boulder, we have seen an increase in numbers of urban-adapted generalist species, things like collard dove, starling, all these species that love humans and love trees. And we've seen a decline in numbers of grassland species, and that's because of urbanization. But you have to be c- careful how you use the data to analyze bird populations.
0: Well, that's fascinating, too. That means that naturalists and scientists, scientific naturalists, know to use this data in combination with other data, which is what you both do.
3: Right and exactly, a lot of the um, data is compiled from also um, breeding bird surveys done during the spring and summer, and other sources of information that are provided through um, atlasing and other surveys that are done during the time when birds are in North America and nesting.
2: So, I'm sorry. (laughs) I want to give you one piece of data. I just wanted to get that. In the 1950 count, I think there were about 40 or 50 participants, and they saw one great horned owl. Now we're typically seeing, what, about 100 great horned owls on the count. This is a profound change in our environment. It's because of the tree invasion. It's because great horned owls do really well around people. They like mice. Uh, They can even feed on our roadkill. And great horned owls, um, as sweet and beautiful as they are, are wrecking havoc on some of our native grassland birds. They go out and prey on burrowing owls, and they prey on northern harriers. So it's those kind of changes that tell us what's going on with our environment and what we need to do.
0: Well, there's some happy news, and then there's some animals eat animals news and all of this and there's other ways that the birds and the are being helped and harmed by what we do and what we can do um if people want to help out with this they should dress warmly you think
3: oh yeah definitely uh, my rule is always bring the warmest boots you can have because uh that will keep you the whole rest of you warm the entire day if your feet get cold your day will be ruined. <laughs> so,
0: so, so, warmest yeah. boots and warmest mittens, warmest hat. Yeah. Keep layering it on because you're not going to be moving fast when you do the Christmas bird count. You're going to be walking slowly and looking. Yeah,
3: we're. I'm in my in my group. I'm very methodical and try to cover my area as best I can. And so, yeah, but it shouldn't scare you to come along. I try to bring some extra uh, pocket warmers and things, and if you get too cold, I. I let you, uh, I don't keep you hostage, no birding hostages.
0: All right. So in case some people are driving in their cars and listening to this and want to keep in mind where to go to look for information on the Christmas bird count, it's Sunday, December 15th. What's the website to go to?
3: BoulderAudubon.org. You can also go to Audubon.org if you are interested in participating in any of the Uh, hundreds or maybe thousands of Christmas counts across the nation and we also have a a sister Christmas count the day before in Longmont
0: Okay, that's a good point too so if you're listening from other areas go look at an Audubon site and see what's the closest Christmas bird count to you it's quite a kick to do it and quite helpful for science too and thank you both for helping to make this possible, this Christmas bird count every year.
2: Thank you, Shelley
0: That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel Parker. This week's show was produced and engineered by yours truly, Shelley Schlender. Additional contributions from Joel Parker. Our theme music is written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Sandra Wong. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KJNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KJNU Science Show, I'm Shelley Schlender.